Once a month, we like to visit with our partners at SOU's Anthropology Lab, where we look at unique aspects of history. Today, anthropologist and host Chelsea Rose visits with population geneticist Paul Mayer to discuss his organization's work analyzing DNA from the great composer Ludwig van Beethoven's 200-year-old hair. You're listening to Underground History, a collaboration between Jefferson Public Radio and the Southern Oregon University Laboratory of Anthropology, or SULA. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and each month we take a deep dive into little-known aspects of history in Oregon and beyond. Today, I'm joined by population geneticist Paul Mayer, one of the scientists involved with DNA testing on Beethoven's hair. German composer Ludwig von Beethoven died in 1827 at the age of 56 from what was believed to be liver problems. He's more famously known for his hearing loss that started in his 20s, resulting in him becoming functionally deaf by his 40s. New technology has allowed for a group of scientists to travel back and assess what exactly was going on at the time of his death. So, Paul, what was the impetus for this project? And, you got to tell me the truth, did you play the Fifth Symphony right before you read the results? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> well, first, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me, Chelsea. And, uh, yeah, I have to be honest, most of the time I was doing the research, I had Beethoven's ninth, or actually, I, I think it's his sixth that's my favorite, but, yep, always playing Beethoven in the background. Oh, good. <laughs> um, what was the impetus of the study was actually Tristan Begg, who's the lead author, started his master's on Beethoven studies about a decade ago at uh, San Jose State University's American Beethoven Society. And eventually, long story short, that culminated on uh, a mission to sequence Beethoven's DNA, where he eventually ended up in Cambridge University and collaborating with the Max Planck Society or Max Planck Institute in Leipzig, Germany. Um, so their initial goal was to just identify genetic causes of Beethoven's ailments, you know, his hearing loss, as you mentioned, his stomach ailment, his liver cirrhosis later in life. But they had such unusual results in the uh, initial uh, screening that they had to come to Family Tree DNA, where I worked to try to pursue uh, more answers. Oh, that's interesting. And I read somewhere, I think, that he at some point wrote a note like that he wanted everybody to know about his illness, and I don't know which one he was talking about. But did that really mean that he was hoping that people 200 years later would be like really looking into the intricacies of his bowels? I mean, that was one of the things that um, is so funny to hear about in the newspaper is like all this talk about, did he have IBS, you know? Do, <laughs> do we want that as our legacy going forward? <laughs> It's so interesting, right? It's very unusual to have an ancient DNA study where the subject of the study actually wants to be studied. And who knows if he imagined that 200 years later we would have the technology we have now. But certainly he wanted his, I think, a particular stomach uh, pain to be understood better. And so I think he was very interested in and keen, um, in particular, having his doctor, who was alive at the time, uh, follow up on that after his death, although his doctor passed away before he did. But, um, yeah, I think he was very interested in finding out what the cause of, of that uh, issue was because it plagued him for so much of his life. And so that letter was kind of taken as a mandate, like we have his consent to do this. That's right. And it's very unusual, like I said, to have affirmative consent from a subject uh, passed away long before DNA was even understood. Yeah. And to get at the DNA, so you did this using hair, but before you could really tie this with confidence to Beethoven, you had to do a lot of work to validate, are these hair samples really from him? So can you tell us a little bit about that process? Yeah. So there were eight locks of hair initially that were considered, and they were all attributed to Beethoven with you know each one having an, uh, an independent provenance. And they were collected near the end of his life between 1821 and 1827 when he died. 
and two of them had fully intact chains of custody, meaning we always know uh, where the hair was, with whom it was, and so we know the, the entire history of that sample. Um, so of those eight locks of hair, we found that five of them belonged to the same single male individual. In other words, they had both X and Y chromosome, that they were all uh, of Central European ancestry, and they all had DNA degradation patterns consistent with someone who lived in the 19th century. In other words, when DNA is not in a living person, <laughs> over time it degrades and it doesn't look the same. It develops new mutations. So you can sort of trace back when the sample was initially taken. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, you know, my expertise is almost exclusively derived from watching many hours of CSI. But I always thought, like, you couldn't just have the clipped, like, lovely little locket of here's my hair to remember me by. You had to have it, like, at the roots. So, uh, you know, did you have to, like, try to find the hair that had the right kind of DNA thing? Or or can you use now new technology to get DNA from anything? You know, that's not, it's a little bit outside my area of expertise, but my understanding is that with these ancient DNA labs, like the Max Planck uh, Institute in Leipzig, they're able to extract very, very small quantities of fragmented DNA, even from parts of the hair that are not the follicle. So I think that does help, you're right, but I think they're able to do amazing things now with these new techniques they have. Yeah, and was this surprising to you that, that there were so many hair samples out there? I know I've heard of, like, the, the weaving, like, the hair art that people used to make in the Victorian era, but, um, you know, just the fact that there were so many people that ended up with these samples of hair and recognized them as important, they really kept the prominence all these years. I mean, that, that must have been kind of surprising. Yeah, and, I'm again, I'm not an historian, so I don't know <laughs> the full details, but my, my understanding is that this was sort of like getting an autograph from a famous person today. It was sort of a, um, a tribute to someone who's famous that, you know, if you respect someone, it, it means a lot to get something that, you know, it belongs to them, including their hair lock. <laughs> so yeah, that's I think it was cool. a bit like that. <laughs> so what kind of DNA did you use to do these studies? Like when you got the, the, the details from, you know, the Max Planck or whoever was giving you, like, here's what we have so far. Um, how did you figure out what different things you could say based on those different types of information? Well, so when the researchers at Cambridge and Max Planck came to us at Family Tree DNA, they had already sequenced the genome. So they had kind of a, a scaffolding of the whole genome ready. What they wanted to do at that point was put it into our database where we have lots of other modern testers with Y-DNA, in other words, the Y chromosome, which comes from your dad's dad's, et cetera, and also mitochondrial DNA, which comes from your mother's line, and everything in between, which is the autosomal DNA. So we didn't do any of the actual sequencing per se, but we matched it to as many possible types of DNA in our database as possible to try to find out more about the sample. Oh, that's interesting. You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange, where we explore little-known aspects of our history in this region and beyond. You can find us online at jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and today I'm speaking with geneticist Paul Mayer about some of the most intimate aspects of Beethoven's life and health told through his hair. You know, you're using, like, the, the family tree database to look at this, but with some of the DNA, is it genetic predisposition or pathology or what kind of things, how are you thinking you're going to be able to tell if this impacted his hearing loss or his stomach ailments, you know, using that DNA? How does, what does that, how does that get from A to B on those, those goals? Yeah. So diseases are fairly complex. And although there are some that are very simple, they have single genes conferring the disease. Typically diseases are polygenic, meaning that there are lots of different markers that are involved and usually it's not just a genetic predisposition, it's, it's also environmental. There's other causes that are accumulated throughout your lifetime. So 
for some of the ones that we considered in this study, they're certainly polygenic and they're certainly not fatalistic. So what we can do is look at what markers, what mutations uh, Beethoven had and try to compare them against a general population of people with you know, all sorts of different mutations. And based on that, we come up with something called a polygenic risk score. It's basically like how likely to have a disease based only on the genetics, ignoring the other factors like the environment. So based on that, we were able to look at hypotheses for his hearing loss, for cirrhosis of the liver, which eventually killed him, of course, and also for stomach disease. Yeah, so the fact that, so you didn't find anything that would uh, help explain the hearing loss, is that right? So absence of evidence is probably not evidence of absence, though, in that instance? That's right. Yeah, although there was one uh, screening that we did that put him in the 93rd percentile for lupus, it's not definitive, and we weren't able to consider other causes like otosclerosis and Paget's disease and Crohn's. So, yeah, it's not definitive, but it does give us more information than we had before. Mm-hmm. And then tell me a little bit about what you found out about his, to explain what was happening with his liver. Yeah, so oftentimes cirrhosis of the liver is a multifactorial thing, including alcohol, which definitely doesn't help, as well as viral hepatitis, either B or C and sometimes genetic predisposition. And we found that he was homozygous, meaning he had mutations from both mom's and dad's side, for a mutation that is very common in cirrhosis in genetic studies. So he had both copies uh, of this uh, particular gene, had mutations, and he also, you know, according to records, was a fairly uh, frequent alcohol consumer, especially near the end of his life. And then we also found evidence that he had hepatitis B, by looking at sequences that were kind of interspersed with his own you know, human DNA. We found the viral DNA for hepatitis B. So he kind of had the trifecta of uh, predisposition to having cirrhosis. And so with these kind of testing, are you finding stuff that you're, you're looking for, but there's a lot more things that could be there, you just aren't specifically looking for it? Or are some things, like if it's in there, the database will pop up like, hey, he also had whatever. Yeah. Well, and I should say that I wasn't uh, very involved with the medical aspects of this uh-huh. study, so I think the people at Max Planck can better answer that. Uh-huh. But it is you know, limited what we know about modern-day diseases, and we're finding new markers all the time. So now that we have this full genome, you know, although it wasn't sequenced entirely, it's ancient DNA, so we only have about two-thirds of it. But the part that we do have, you know, there are probably markers in there we're not even aware confer disease. And in the future, we'll know more about them based on that. Yeah, that's exciting. And one of the things I love about this project is how interdisciplinary it is. You have folks from all different backgrounds, kind of, you know, historians and the folks doing the DNA and the folks doing the genealogy. I mean, that's so cool. But I was wondering, are other things, if you know, happening, like, for example, testing for heavy metals or things like that, that could be on the hair that you, you, you know, you wouldn't need the DNA for? My understanding is that a part of the hypothesis that he died of lead poisoning came from one of the hair samples that at that point had not been sequenced. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is, I think, the Hiller sample. And now that we've sequenced it, we know it's inauthentic. It doesn't belong to Beethoven. It actually belongs to a woman who we think is probably Jewish and definitely not not Beethoven. So it's possible that overturned that idea, or at least, um, you know, we don't have as much evidence as we did before that lead poisoning may have been the cause of his death or the cause of his hearing loss. But yeah, there, there are certainly toxicological analyses that people do 
using sometimes the same hair samples to try to find out more about his life. Yeah, because I know now with XRF, it's it's pretty accessible testing to do, and you just would, it's non-destructive. You just, I don't know if a hair is big enough to get a good sample of, but I'm sure they have a way to do it. And then you could see what, you know, what kind of things were in there, mercury, arsenic, all sorts of other creepy things that might have gotten on them. Also, some of those things were used as preservatives. So I, you know, whoever had the hair sample, if they were worried it might de- degrade, they might also have put something on there as a preservative, which also could be toxic nowadays. Oh, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's outside my realm. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> were, do you know if the DNA tests that they did were destructive or is there opportunities to continue to kind of like hone in on this? I don't know the answer to that. I, I think uh, they didn't extract all of the hair. So they would have just, you know, extracted some of it and, you know, done a, a low, first a low pass genome, which means they were screening to find out if it was authentic across all the samples. And once they found the best sample, then they sequenced that to high depth. But, yeah, I believe there's plenty more sample to be sequenced in the future. But check with Max Planck. Yeah, yeah. sorry to keep asking about that stuff. I, well, <laughs> I think what's so interesting about this is this is an individual that we have so much historical information about that once we add this extra line of evidence, you know, we can really kind of ask more nuanced questions because you already know what was going on with the stomach. You presumably already know family tree stuff. So, um, you know, and there's consent of the individual to kind of do all these things. So it's a good opportunity to kind of get a – to use this, these, all these, um, you know, intersectional lines of evidence to really tell some interesting questions that you maybe don't always have all that information about other, other people is what I'm thinking. Yeah. And, you know, there was a professor who I worked with a long time ago named David Resnick. He's a famous evolutionary biologist. He always said that theories are kind of a consilience of evidence, like a, a consilience of different techniques telling you the same thing. And once you have that, you know, you're closer to the truth. And I think we got you know, something like that here with this study where originally we sequenced the DNA, we matched it to other living Beethovens, and we found that this sample, although we have so much evidence in the paper trail that this is in fact Beethoven, the provenance is solid. In fact, he doesn't match living Beethovens. And so we came at this from a different angle to try to validate it further. So I've asked you a bunch of stuff that was a little bit out of your wheelhouse. So let's get right into your wheelhouse now. So how did you use the the vast genetic database that you have access to to kind of look at his family tree and figure out where shenanigans were happening and, you know, that Beethoven isn't maybe a Beethoven? Like, how did how did you figure that out? Yeah, for sure. Well, for starters, we sequenced five living Beethovens. We tested their Y chromosomes, the high resolution. And of course, we had already sequenced Beethoven, uh, Ludwig, uh, Ludwig van Beethoven the high resolution on his Y chromosome. And what we found was that for the other five testers, their genetic family tree perfectly recapitulates their known family tree. So in other words, everything that they're saying about their history matches up with the genetics. But they are all in what we call haplogroup R1b, which is just a way of saying it's, it's part of the tree of all of mankind. And Ludwig doesn't match any of them. He's in a completely separate haplogroup called I1a. And those two different father lines are separated by about 45,000 years, which is about the time humans left Africa. So that strongly suggests that there was some sort of extra pair paternity event in Ludwig's father line. So that means going up the tree, starting somewhere uh, around Ludwig's father, Johann, and going all the way up to his fifth great-grandfather, Ert. One of those Beethovens wasn't a biological ancestor to Ludwig, and that means somewhere in there, there was an extra pair event. So getting to the exact nature of that is part of what we're trying to do now by testing more people, and anyone who tests today can help try to resolve that mystery. So, and how do because you can kind of tell how 
how far back that split happened. How, I mean, how do you do that? How do you measure time using the changes in DNA? It's just, and I'm assuming the more data you get, the more finely you can uh, fine tune that. But how do you do it now? Yeah, that's a really good question. So in a sense, or to an extent, there's a bit of a, a clock. There's periodicity to mutations that accumulate in all of our DNA. So over time, we can sort of calibrate that clock to time and say, well, this many mutations happened over this time interval. And that way we can say, looking at these, let's say 100 people, they share a common ancestor. And we know that ancestor lived between 500 and 600 years ago using that molecular clock. So that's how we date DNA. And so now that you, because you do kind of know what generation that this breakdown happened, right? Yeah, about seven generations back. Seven generations back. So now is when you get the historians involved again and say, all right, what was happening seven generations ago? And maybe they can try to figure it out? Or is this like going to be too hard of a job because it's too far? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's it's fun to speculate, but I think we're never going to get to the precise answer until other people test and become part of this collaborative project. So we know the split was somewhere between seven generations up and Ludwig's father. It could have been his father, but we don't know that. Um, And as, as soon as other people test, we can find out you know, people matching more closely to Beethoven's sample will tell us maybe it wasn't his fifth great-grandparent and it wasn't his fourth. We can start ruling out possibilities. And if those people have known surnames for that shared ancestor, if that makes sense, then we can start narrowing down the surname that is actually biologically Beethoven's you know, surname. Yeah. And this, this kind of gets to, you know, all the potential that we're seeing, you know, people didn't even think about DNA databases and stuff a couple years ago. And now they're like catching serial killers and reuniting lost loved ones and stuff. And so with more data, where do you think, you know, where does this lead? How, how precise do you think this can be if you had infinite data to use? Well, in the case of this study, we could find out, you know, with much more precision, exactly what, what happened in his family history. I think more generally, the more people who test, the more we can find out about how we're all related to each other. And I think that's fascinating. I mean, in my own personal genealogical research, I found more and more as I've you know, been able to look at bigger databases and find out more about where some of my cousins who I thought shouldn't even exist are in the world. You know, I have Jewish ancestry, for example. And so finding out that some of my cousins who were thought to have died out in World War II actually left descendants and find out more about those people, it's amazing. Yeah, that's super interesting. So what about, is there a way using the DNA that you have that you now know is not of the Beethoven lineage? Can you figure out whose lineage it is or that's where you need the more data to do? Or would you have to like do a really complicated like reverse engineering to figure out who those folks are? Well, you mean people who match Beethoven, uh, the sample? His actual, um, you know, if he's not in the Beethoven family, who he really was that we don't know. Yeah, so we have some testers who match him. But the the common ancestor between Ludwig and those people is about a thousand years old, and that's before the time of surnames is the problem. So although they may have surnames in their own family histories, they're all different surnames because the common ancestor, you know, is much older than that. So once people, just by chance, once people test who match Beethoven a bit more closely, then we'll start finding a pattern, and that'll help us decipher what's going on. But we did talk to one of the descendants who actually is biologically related to, to Ludwig. And he was flabbergasted. He's a German guy, and, and he said uh, it makes him really proud and that, you know, he, he's, he said he was speechless because he's been doing research on his family for decades because he didn't know originally who his father or grandfather were. And so he just felt very connected to uh, a really important tradition. So he, he did know that he was related to Beethoven, or he didn't? He just found out? He just found out, and he, you know, above that, 
before uh, recently, he didn't even know who his father or grandfather were. So wow. he found all of this out almost at the same time. Through, like, the Family Tree database? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Whoa. And this is like, um, so if people, how are they finding this out on there? If it's like flags, like, hey, here's who you're related to, if you put in your, your DNA information? Yeah, we have uh, a new tool called the Discover Report, and it will flag if you're related to Ludwig, uh, excuse me, Ludwig <laughs> van Beethoven. It'll kind of flag you down and say, hey, you're related to him, or if you haven't tested with enough resolution, but more resolution would tell you that answer, it'll kind of flag you down and say, hey, you should test the higher resolution. Okay, so that's good advertising for folks. If you want to um, <laughs> have your DNA <laughs> tested and see if you're related to Beethoven, here's the place to do it. So, um, You're listening to Underground History on the Jefferson Exchange, where we are exploring little-known aspects of our history in this region and beyond. And you can find us on jeffexchange.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Rose, and today I'm speaking with geneticist Paul Mayer about the recent DNA evidence obtained from Beethoven's hair and what it is telling us about the famous composer's life and death. So... When you said that you were looking at the the Y chromosome information, so what is the type of things that you can learn from? You said you did um, mitochondrial DNA and the and autosomal DNA. So what are what are the different things, the pieces that all of these different tests are adding to the puzzle? Yeah. So on the mitochondrial side, we found out one cool fact, which is that he's related to James Watson, who was the co-discoverer of the helix structure of DNA. Yeah. He's actually just one mutation different from that, um, and then. On the autosomal realm, and should I explain, do you know what autosomal DNA is? I think go ahead and explain that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so think of your DNA as kind of three broad categories. On your dad's side, you have your dad's dad's dad's, et cetera, and that's your uh, surname line or your patrilineal line. On the other side, on the flip side, you have mitochondrial DNA, which does that for your mom's mom's mom's, et cetera. So everything in between is your autosomal DNA, essentially, except for your X and Y. That's kind of a, you know, your X chromosome is a special chromosome, but the other 22 pairs of chromosomes are autosomal ones. And so by matching people in our database, you can find out how closely related you are to them, you know, what level cousin you are, et cetera. And so, yeah, what we did is we wanted extra validation, right, because we found out that a sample we were sure was Beethoven doesn't match other Beethovens, and we wanted extra reassurance. So we came up with a new technique that we're calling uh, geogenetic triangulation, or GGT, kind of a mouthful. But the basic premise is we have really strong evidence that he is who we think he is from intact uh, chain of custody. But if we want to validate it further, we can look at the database. We can say, well, this sample has thousands of genetic matches, you know, distant cousins in our database. And those cousins have family trees, right? They have a list of ancestor locations. So we'd expect those ancestor locations to be consistent with Beethoven's because, you know, those thousands of distant cousins should have a recent common ancestor with Beethoven. Um, so we were able to kind of check ourselves and say, well, we think we know, but let's look at the pattern of, you know, locations of these thousand people that he matches. And we found that, yes, in fact, those people have a lot of ancestry in the kind of North Rhine, Westphalia region of Western Germany, which is where Beethoven grew up. He was born in Bonn, Germany. So that helped give us re reassurance that we actually knew what we thought we knew. Yeah. So are you 
building like there's so much data here but in order to get all this information out of it you have to like organize it spatially and all that so are you building like when you said you created that new technique does that include like creating a way to to spatially present it in by region or you know are, are all those different it seems like there's um i'm trying to think of what i'm trying to ask here there's an infinite way to use this data but what's limiting us is just the programs that can crunch it i guess does that make sense <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, and that's where I spend a lot of my time is coming up with new ways to crunch and visualize information <laughs> because there's so much of it, both genetic and spatial. And so, yeah, we're able to, if you actually looked at the paper, it gives this really cool uh, formatted plot that shows you a heat map, if you will, kind mm-hmm. of where the locations most likely for the sample to have come from are, and it's all you know concordant with where Beethoven's ancestry is, yeah. That's so interesting. So I'm assuming that most of your time you're not um, looking at the the genetical or the, the genealogy, sorry, I'm making up new words here for you to add to those <laughs> maps, um, the genealogical information about famous people. You're probably looking at um, just everyday people and, and patterns and, and the way that people have distributed around the planet. I mean, or what, are you, what do you do normally with this database? Yeah, it's kind of a mix. Um, originally, yeah, we only worked on modern data and it was coming up with tools to help people discover the hidden aspects of their ancestry using genetic tools. But now we are kind of branching out, and we're adding as many ancient DNA samples. And by ancient, I mean anywhere from 100,000 years ago, which would be a rare, you know, sample to have. But there are a few that are, you know, pushing you know, 60 between 40 and 60,000 years old, and then some that are a few hundred years old, but they're before, um, you know, kind of recorded history in certain parts of the world, like the Americas. And so we're able to put those in our database, especially in our tree of mankind, the Y tree for Y chromosomes. Mm -hmm. And that way people can find out not only do they um, closely match living people, but also do they closely match these really interesting samples with an archaeological record. Yeah, we've got um, 17,000-year-old DNA from Oregon out of Paisley Caves taken from Coprolite. I hope that's in there. Oh, I hope so, too. I'm not sure. (laughs) I can check after this. But do you think there's more, um, I mean, is there projects right now? I know this project was kind of brought to you from historians and folks who had been doing all this work, but do you think there's other, like, hair samples out there that people are trying to to figure out to do this, like, in-depth study about individuals that, um, you know, that they have a good chain of of custody for? I, I certainly hope so. I mean, this kind of historical genetic study is completely new to me. And, you know, when it fell on my desk three years ago, I wasn't expecting it. But I would imagine we've kind of opened the floodgates now, right? You know, now that this word of this is getting out, I'm sure there are people with hair samples and other kinds of samples who have some kind of story to tell, and we can help tell it. Yeah. So kind of on that note, since you do this for a living, what is the weirdest thing that you have gotten DNA from or that you have discovered from DNA so far? (laughs) Um. Well, one thing comes to mind, I'm not even sure if I should say it on the air, but <laughs> there have been <laughs> Now I definitely want to know. <laughs> <laughs> and this is all secondhand, so I don't have the details, unfortunately. But um, we've definitely gotten some body parts uh, sent in, in, in bags and so forth. Uh, so, yeah, people should definitely check with the lab before they assume things. Oh, wow. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, so if people want to um, add to this study and try to see, you know, to add data to your database or to try to see if they're related to Beethoven, what's the best way for them to do that? The best way, I would say, is to either right away do a Y-DNA test. Um, it is a slightly more expensive test, but you get a ton more out of it if that's your ultimate goal, is to look at the relationship between you and Beethoven on your father's line. Um, 
and kind of a more a lower entry point, I would say, is our family finder test. And that's the autosomal test. So it doesn't directly test the Y-DNA, but it, it sort of does in the sense that there are a few Y-DNA markers on the test, just kind of sprinkled in so we get a clue. And if there's any interesting pattern there, we can always upgrade that person later to do the full test. Okay, that's 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 interesting. That sounds like some good um, good new data. I think will come out of this radio show. I hope so. <laughs> um, and that wraps up this round of underground history on the Jefferson Exchange. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thank and you so much for having me, Chelsea. So, if they have um, famous people's hair lying around, they don't contact you. They contact somebody else to get the DNA, DNA, and then they give the results to you, right? Yeah, please don't mail to my house. Uh, you can always uh, look at the Family Tree DNA website. That's familytreedna.com, and our customer support team can help you guys figure out where to send it. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. You can find Underground History online at jeffexchange.org or subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher, Pandora, or Spotify. Thanks for joining us.